Well, good morning to each of you. It is good for us to be together again. I marvel at the weather. We had rain this morning, and now the sun has come out, and um, just reminded of God's faithfulness. Again this morning, I'm going to ask something significant from you. I'm going to ask that you really, really listen, and that you also think Some time ago, I had a message on marriage, and um, I I believe in marriage. (laughs) I really do. I I think it's a wonderful institution that God has created, and that ideal is, is so wonderful to talk about, and we need to always uphold that and talk about it. But this morning, I'm going to be talking about the, the other aspect. The title of my message this morning is, As Long As We Both Shall Live. As Long As We Both Shall Live. There's no question in my mind that people who have been raised in the church, no matter what denomination, have a pretty good idea of what the church's expectations are when it comes to marriage. But where I feel we have really failed in our, certainly in Western culture, is that we have not effectively communicated what God's Word says about permanence of marriage. And so what we are finding is a lot of confusion in our day and time. It's as though there are new trends and uh, we, we experience new trends all the time. Look at all the things that have become trendy now or have changed since COVID. Uh, new things that people hadn't even thought about, ways of doing things. And all of a sudden, because we see this trend and different people are doing this, that somehow our feelings and our expectations and our acceptance gets affected with these without any moral basis. I especially am concerned about our younger generation that are now looking and thinking about marriage and what they are expecting and who they are considering as spouses. I ran across some statistics from this year, 2023. In America today, in our society, marriage rate dropped to a 50-year low, and it continues to decline. More people are opting for cohabitation instead of marriage. The U.S. ranks sixth among among countries with high divorce rate, sixth among all countries in the world. 45% of Americans are married. That's down from 50% in 2015. And the average duration of a marriage in America today is eight years. Divorce and remarriage are painful subjects to address biblically in our culture for several reasons. And I feel these very keenly this morning. The first of those is that the practice of divorce, and often followed by remarriage, 
has reached epidemic proportions, even among those who profess to be Christians. Nearly every believer today knows some other believer personally who has experienced divorce, and many know another believer personally who has remarried following divorce. Many believers have observed that practice in their own family, and I have in my family as well. A second reason I find it difficult for us to want to talk about is that most Christians who divorce also remarry often with the strong encouragement of other believers. Without a thorough understanding, without understanding what the Bible says and then making their decision in response to that. There are so many widely varying positions and teachings about divorce and remarriage today. And as a result, believers in potential divorce and remarriage situations often are receiving conflicting counsel from different churches, different pastors, different leaders, often from individuals who themselves are already in subsequent marriages following divorce. Now, notice, this is not a painful and difficult subject for us to talk about this morning because some new biblical teaching has come on to the front. Nor is it difficult because there has been, um, human nature has taken some dire change, has become more deviant or depraved. No, in essence, this morning, this subject is a painful one because of the drift in understanding, proclamation and practice of the Christian church today compared to the early church. Now, I mentioned some time ago when I started a series on biblical interpretation that the task of biblical interpretation and application rests on seeking to understand what the Scripture said, how it was understood by its original audience. We cannot make Scripture say today what it did not say then, nor can we make Scripture not say today what it said then. And a faithful application to any time and culture of Scripture requires a strict adherence to those two axioms. And so this morning, as I share some scriptures and we look at this, my goal this morning is not to convince you to think what I think. My goal this morning is to help you understand spiritual, scriptural truth and to get you to think. You see, I, in this room, I'm not the only one that possesses the Holy Spirit. You possess the Holy Spirit. What you need for direction and understanding of the Holy Spirit is an understanding of scriptural truth and then be willing to think. 2023 can be the greatest year for you spiritually and for me spiritually. 
if we will submit to two things, a high view of Scripture and a high view of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So this morning, I want to offer, and, and you know, I hesitate because you could talk about divorce and marriage for a week of Sundays. But this morning, I want to offer what I believe and what our congregation has accepted are three primary points to reflect the Bible's teaching on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Three. You could go a lot more. But, but I think if we can faithfully communicate, especially to our young people, these three primary points, we will support and encourage biblical marriage in our day and time. So you may want to jot these down, or at least think about them. The first of those points is, the one flesh union created in marriage is permanent until death. Jesus referred to the nature and permanence of marital union when he said this in Matthew 19, verse 5 and 6. I'm going to take time for you to turn there, but you can jot that down. Jesus said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Therefore they not might be, not hopefully will be, not possibly, no. He says, Therefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. You see, Jesus' language in that passage shows that the couple are passive in the act of marriage. Did you notice that? Nor does a minister marry them. God himself joins them together. What God joins them together? The same God that created everything that you and I see. The same God for which there is nothing is impossible, no hard for him. The same God that gives life and takes life. That's the God that joins them together. And so additionally, notice the scripture makes it clear that no one other than God can dissolve that one flesh union. The declaration, until death do you part, that we often hear, that's not a construct of a couple's declaration of their love together. That's not where that comes from, that we so love each other that we're going to be committed till death do us part. That's not where that comes from. That comes directly from Scripture. That's what God says. It's an acknowledgement of God being the only one who is eligible to put asunder the marital union. And what is the sole instrument God uses to dissolve a marriage? Death of one or both spouses. You see, divorce does not end that which God has established as permanent. And despite the civil laws and societal accommodations and personal opinions to the contrary, according to what Jesus said, that one flesh union is permanent until God dissolves it. Now, we can be certain that this is true. 
Because remarriage after divorce is declared to be an act of adultery. Mark 10, verse 11 and 12, listen to what Jesus said. Whosoever shall put away his wife, that's another expression for divorce, and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. The Apostle Paul stated it this way in Romans 7, verses 2 and 3. For the married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. How do you think the original audience understood that? Not how would we like to understand it. How did the original audience understand that? We cannot this morning make that scripture say what it doesn't say nor can we make it not say what it says. You see, an act of sex between two people is called adultery only when it violates an existing marital union. Because remarriage after divorce, while the original spouse is living, is called adultery, it's quite evident then that the one flesh union with the formal spouse still exists in some supernatural form. This union created by God in marriage is not uncreated by the act of divorce. So the first statement I'm saying to us this morning that I find clearly evident in Scripture is the one flesh union created in marriage is permanent until death. The second, initiating a divorce is never biblical. Jesus prohibited initiating divorce categorically by using absolute and universal terms when he said, and what therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. The point of this command is to say that Man, whether male or female, is not to attempt to destroy what God has created. And in both Matthew 19 and Mark 10, Jesus' statement was his response to the Pharisees' question when they asked him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? And Jesus' answer to the question was an unqualified no. The Apostle Paul's prohibition of divorce in 1 Corinthians 7 is in perfect agreement with the teaching of Jesus. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. Verse 10, Unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. Verse 11, And let not the husband put away his wife. Verse 12, If any brother have a wife that believes not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. Verse 13. 
And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. You see, no less than four times in this chapter, Paul says, do not divorce your spouse. The closest he ever comes to an exception to this rule is in verse 15 when the believing spouse is permitted to cooperate in a divorce if the unbelieving spouse insists on departing. He says, let them go. If they leave, let them go. Paul gives no support for the idea that in certain cases it is lawful to initiate a divorce. Well, the third summary statement, and again, there could be a lot more, but I think these three cover the important aspects. Remarrying after divorce while the former spouse is living creates an adulterous relationship. If the one flesh union created by God in marriage is permanent, and though marriages can be and frequently are severed externally in civil and legal ways, the one flesh union can only be separated by God himself through the death of one or both spouses. You see, that is why marriage to any other person after divorce, as long as the original spouse is living, is consistently called adultery in Scripture. I challenge you, everywhere in the New Testament, that Scripture mentions marriage after divorce it is called adultery. And that is why. Matthew 5, 32. Whoever marries her that is divorced committeth adultery. Mark 10, verses 11 to 12. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Luke 16, 18. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. You see, these verses clearly provide no exceptions to the instruction that remarriage after divorce is an act of adultery. And furthermore, the Apostle Paul affirms Jesus' statements in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 to 11. Unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. But if she depart, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband. And let not the husband put away his wife. The only case in which the Apostle Paul permits remarriage is when the former spouse has died. So these three points. The one flesh union created in marriage is permanent until death. Initiating a divorce is never biblical. And remarrying after divorce while the former spouse is still living creates an adulterous relationship. Those three constitute our understanding of the scriptural teaching and thus our position on divorce and remarriage. Now, as you well know, there are many other views and positions taken by believers who are seeking to be obedient to the Bible. This position that I've put forth this morning is often referred to as a permanence position. Because it recognized that the one flesh union created in marriage is a permanent, earthly union separated only by the death of one or, more, or both parties. Now, in light of the scriptures we looked at this morning, 
And our call and commitment to let the scriptures say, not more nor less than they said to the original audience for which they were intended. I don't believe the integrity of these scriptures concerning this difficult and sensitive topic, I don't think the integrity of those scriptures can be preserved without arriving at these conclusions. You have to do something with that scripture. You can't just gloss it over. And as I stated in the beginning of my message, there are a myriad of variations of understanding of this important teaching that have made their way into mainstream and Christian circles, principally in the last 1,000 years. Allow me this morning, in the time remaining, to give an explanation of the most significant objection to the permanence of marriage principle that I have recounted. There are many that we could look at, but let me just, in the time we have, let me take the number one objection. Most evangelical Christians believe that there is at least one exception to the no divorce, no remarriage statements made by Jesus and the Apostle Paul. And the disagreement centers around Jesus' words in Matthew 19.9. And here's what Jesus said. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. I added the emphasis. Now, many modern Bible translations have changed that word, and I don't know what Bible you have with you this morning, have changed that word fornication to marital unfaithfulness. Many have come to understand, and they have eagerly claimed, that this exception caused with permission to divorce or remarriage when a marriage covenant has been violated by one's spouse's sexual unfaithfulness, in other words, by adultery. But this permissive understanding of Matthew 19.9 is a direct conflict with what Jesus said just three verses prior. Three verses prior, Jesus said, What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder as well as his consistent prohibition of remarriage after divorce in Matthew 5, 32. Hers, whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. So, so let me ask you, what do we do with that then? Let me ask you four questions. Did Jesus actually permit in verse 9 what he had just said no man may ever do in verse 6? Did Jesus permit remarriage after divorce for adultery despite his unqualified prohibition of all remarriage of or to a divorced person where, whose former spouse is still living, as recorded in the other scriptures we looked at? Should we allow Matthew 19.9 to be the determining passage when so much of Jesus' teaching and the Apostle Paul's teaching point in the opposite direction? Is it proper interpretation to allow a single text to override what is plainly stated in other places? I believe the answer to each of these questions is no. 
Now I understand how and why many believers understand Matthew 19.9 this way. But there's a much better interpretation. There's an interpretation that harmonizes all the passages we've looked at, including Matthew 19.9. There's an interpretation that, that, that brings it all together with no conflict with any of them. And it fits the historical context of Matthew's gospel. Let me present that argument this morning. In Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19.9, when Jesus prohibited divorce and remarriage, except for fornication, that Greek word pornea, he was excluding from his prohibition the annulment of a Jewish betrothal contract on the grounds of premarital sexual immorality. You see, in Jewish culture, there were annulments during the betrothal period, and they were referred to as a divorce. And they were considered necessary when one of the parties betrothed was found to have been unchaste before the wedding. Anybody know any time when that was happened? Mary and Joseph. Okay. Now, Jesus did not want to be misunderstood as prohibiting this legal and legitimate act of divorce, actually annulment, along with his categorical prohibition of divorce, in the context of marriage. Now again, let me stop to say, it's not my responsibility this morning to persuade you to think exactly like I think. Although, as though I was the only one that possessed the Holy Spirit. My responsibility is to present to you truth from God's Word and then encourage you to think. In support of this betrothal view, I want to present four arguments. The first of those, Matthew's usage in Matthew 19.9 of the word, the Greek word porneia, which meant fornication, appears to be very specific, very limited, intentionally so. In fact, each time Matthew uses the word porneia or fornication, he distinguishes it from the Greek word morchia, I'm not sure I pronounced that right, which is the word for adultery. Each time. Nearly every modern translation uses the word adultery for both. Or marital unfaithfulness for the word pornea, which is not correct. Matthew uses pornea three times in his gospel. Let me present those to you. Matthew 5.32, Whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of pornea, or fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. Matthew 15, 19, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Matthew 19, 9, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, or pornea, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. Notice, each time Matthew uses pornea or fornication, he also uses adultery in the same sentence, presumably to clarify the distinction between the two. They are not one and the same. If the exception cause was meant to describe 
marital unfaithfulness, then it's hard to explain why Matthew would not have used adultery instead of pornea. The fact is, if the sin of adultery were what Jesus intended to describe in the exception clause, adultery would have much more clearly explained Jesus' meaning and would have been much more consistent with Matthew's writing pattern. He always used the two, very clearly indicating that they're different. Notice this in John's gospel. John only uses pornea or fornication one time, and it's in chapter 8, verse 41. To understand the context, that was where Jesus confronted the Pharisees, and, and, and they were claiming they were children of Abraham. And Jesus said, no, if you were children, true children of Abraham, you would accept me. And the Pharisees had this response. They said, we were not born of pornea or fornication. We have one father, even God. You see, the unbelieving Pharisees clearly could not allow themselves to believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, according to the Old Testament prophecy. For that would have proven that Jesus was the king of the Jews. That Jesus was the one who would sit forever on the throne of David. So they had to deny the virgin birth. Mary was pregnant before they were married. Okay? So to deny the virgin birth, they said, Oh, the only way we can deny Jesus' virgin birth is to claim that Mary had gotten pregnant through a sexual relationship with Joseph or some other man. Fornication. Sexual relationship before marriage. And that explanation would have made Jesus the one who was born of fornication. The point is, John's use of the word pornea, or fornication, indicates very clearly that that single word was commonly understood among the original audience to describe this particular sin of premarital sex, not adultery. Well, my third argument, Matthew is the only gospel writer who includes the exception clause. In chapter 19, verse 9, and chapter 5, verse 32. He also is the only gospel writer who describes Joseph's intent to divorce Mary as being a righteous one. Joseph being a righteous man thought to put Mary away, to divorce her. Since Matthew is the only one who describes Joseph's situation this way, it logically follows that Matthew would be the one to include the fact that divorce or annulment in such a specific situation was not unlawful. Otherwise, without the exception clause, Jesus would be seen as prohibiting what Matthew had earlier called a righteous thing for Joseph to do. My fourth argument, according to nearly universal scholarly opinion, Matthew's gospel was written primarily to the Jewish audience. Matthew's purpose in writing his gospel was to convince Jews that Jesus was the Messiah, their king. And since the Jews in particular would understand Jewish betrothal, Laws and would therefore wonder if Jesus was prohibiting even this type of divorce, it would naturally follow that Matthew would be the one 
to include this exception clause for the benefit of his Jewish readers. Mark and Luke, on the other hand, are writing primarily to Greek and Roman audience. Now, they had betrothal laws also, but their betrothal laws did not require a legal divorce to end them. Therefore, the Greek and Roman rulers would, would have only associated divorce with the termination of a marriage, which we've already seen Jesus was not allowing. So when all four of these factors are considered, it seems certain that when Jesus said, whoever divorces his wife, except for pornea, he was not permitting divorce in the context of marriage where adultery occurs. Rather, he was clarifying that a legal annulment during betrothal for pernia or fornication was permissible. Now, I can't take time this morning to exhaust all the debate and myriad of viewpoints of scriptural teaching regarding marriage, divorce, and remarriage while a previous spouse is living. Remember, I say to you again this morning, my responsibility is not to convince you to think the way I think. My responsibility is to challenge you to think about scriptural truth. Remember, critical inductive biblical interpretation requires examining the biblical text, what it meant to the original audience. We cannot make the Bible say today what it did not say to the original audience, nor can we make the Bible not say today what it did say to the original audience. Now, one final basic but often unidentified issue involving discussions about remarriage while a previous spouse is living is this. If the act of remarriage is merely the sin, then the offender may acknowledge his sin, be forgiven, and be committed to not repeat the offense, to, to repent of that way of thinking and action. And that scenario then allows the offender to consider in the marriage, in the remarriage relationship. If, however, the sin of adultery he commits by remarrying while his previous spouse is living is a continuous state of sin until the relationship is forsaken, then complete repentance and full assurance of God's forgiveness do not exist until the adulterous union is discontinued. Now, there are people on both sides of that position. But I want you to understand this morning that both of those positions have very serious implications. If adultery committed in remarrying is only the act, then to require separation is to needlessly break up a relationship and lay a heavy and unnecessary burden on persons who desire to repent. It could also result in placing a stumbling block in the path of earnest seekers. If, however, the adultery is a state of continuous sin, to assure such persons of forgiveness while living in a married relationship with a subsequent spouse while their divorced spouse is still living, is to give the offender a false hope of salvation and to sanction their judgment as an adulterer. 
So my final question this morning is, how does God view adultery of remarriage after divorce? Is it just an act of remarrying? Or is that relationship a continuous state of adultery? I'm convinced the Bible clearly presents adultery as an ongoing state of sin until the adulterous union is forsaken. Allow me to present three scriptural situations and the biblical truth declared in each of them. And I ask you this morning to think, to meditate, and to seek to understand. Not what you would like the outcome to be, but what was the outcome. In Genesis 20, and, and again, I'm using some Old Testament because marriage is not an in, a New Testament institution. Marriage did not begin in the New Testament. It began in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 20, do you remember the account of Abimelech, the king of Gerar, who took Abraham's wife, Sarah, for his wife? In verse 3 of Genesis 20, God said to Abimelech in a dream, this is to a pagan man, king, God says to him in a dream, Behold, thou art but a dead man for the woman which thou hast taken, for she is a man's wife. You see, as long as Abimelech had another man's wife under his roof, he was, God said, a dead man until he released her back to her rightful husband, even though he had not touched her. Now that was true even for a pagan king. Now I know you may be saying, well Dave, uh, but this is different because Abraham had not divorced Sarah. In Ezra 9 and 10, we find the situation where the children of Israel had foreign pagan wives. And though a somewhat different situation, these polygamous and unequal unions were illicit, and the sin of the Israelites was not considered to be removed until they separated themselves from those wives. Ezra 10, verses 2 through 11. And the last one, we'll look at one in the New Testament. Herod's taking of his brother Philip's wife. He took Herodias to be his wife. We find this in Matthew 14. Now, as you recall, John the Baptist rebuked Herod for taking his brother Philip's wife. But John did not say in verse 3, it is not lawful for you to have taken Philip's wife, but rather, it is not lawful for you to have her. You see, the only way Herod could have demonstrated repentance, would have been to release Herodias back to Philip. John was rebuking a sinner, which shows that the immorality of adultery is sin not only for the saint, but also for the sinner. If the sin of adultery Herod committed in marrying his brother Philip's wife was merely a sinful act, then John the Baptist died in vain. He should have been more discreet and sensitive. He should have called for Herod to only say, I'm sorry, that was not the right thing for me to do. And then he could have given Herod permission to continue on with Herodias as his wife. Herodias would have had no reason for an ongoing hatred of John the Baptist that led to his death. Except that John the Baptist said, you are living in adultery. 
And Jesus said, no greater prophet ever among man than John the Baptist. Well, in conclusion this morning, I'm convinced that the challenge we have today to discern spiritual truth and embrace it when it comes to this subject is not common with that of the earliest churches. First century Christians understood the words of Jesus and the Apostle Paul as I presented their understanding this morning. And it's regrettable that the history of the church has brought us to the point where such issues produce misunderstanding and confusion. Make no doubt about it. History bears out that the early church did not practice divorce and remarriage while the previous spouse was living. The church has adopted all kinds of variations of restrictions from total forbiddance to no forbiddance. And the result today we find in churches in America, divorce and remarriage is as frequent among professing believers as it is among those who make no profession of faith in God. With church leaders among them in subsequent marriages, how can there be any standard for commitment to marriage declared? And so I conclude back with my title. And I ask you this, till death do us part, are those only words of a fairy tale? Or does the Bible mean what it meant when it was written? Let's pray. Father, this morning we recognize that we are broken people. And despite the fact that you have instituted the holy covenant of marriage. We know that we fail. It's easy for us to accept the ideal as the ideal, but it's so difficult for us to be faithful in the restrictions that come with honoring that commitment. Father, I pray this morning that what these dear people have heard primarily has been your word. And I pray that the truth of your word will grip our hearts, that the truth of your word will be the loudest voice that we hear today much louder than friends and community and family and people that we are attracted to. May the loudest voice we hear be the voice of your word. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit, which indwells these believers, will guide them to truth. This we ask in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Messiah and coming King.